Proverbs 3.5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. One area of, of my life where I have been tempted through the years to lean on my own understanding is with money. But what I found is that God is infinitely wiser than I am when it comes to money. His word speaks to how to give it, how to save it, how to spend it. He not only calls us to be generous, but he calls us to be wise and faithful with what he's given to us. We are not just called to trust the Lord for our salvation or trust the Lord for the forgiveness of our sins, but also for our daily bread, to trust him with 
every area of our lives, including money. And what I found over and over through both hard lessons and easy ones is that God is infinitely wiser than I am when it comes to money, when it comes to every area of life where his ways, his thoughts, his wisdom is far different than mine. Therefore, when God calls me to be generous or store up my treasure in heaven or give so that missions can happen or happen so that the kingdom can, can advance, that wisdom I want to trust in because I know that it's for my good and I know it's for the good of others, for the sake of others, so that others would come to know the Lord so that the kingdom would advance, so the gospel would take up more ground. So as we give, may it be a reminder to us that we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we do not lean on our own understanding. Father God, that is our prayer. We want to lean on your understanding. We want to lean on your wisdom, on your ways. And as we give and as we sing and as we live this week, I pray that we would honor and glorify you. I pray that what is given today would be used to advance the kingdom. It wouldn't be used to advance Crosspoint's name, but to advance the kingdom of God and so that more would come to know you. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
um, and just be in awe of your presence and uh, that we just give you 100% of the glory. Um, just be with Dave as he um, speak, speaks your word this morning. And we love you so much and uh, thank you for all that you've done for us. Amen. Amen. You have a seat. Good morning and welcome to Cross Point. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. and I'm thankful that you're either with us, with us here in the living room or joining us online. Last week I shared with you that on Wednesday of this past week that Harlan Pearson was going in for surgery to remove a brain tumor that was discovered a few weeks ago and the surgery went well. Uh, they were able to get as much as they were able to get without causing injury to the brain. He is home. He got home yesterday. He's actually joining us online, him and his wife Patty. And so I just encourage you to continue to pray for them. As they get results back from that tumor, they'll know uh, next steps as far as chemo, radiation, all those kinds of things. And we'll keep you up to date and so you know how to pray and how to encourage them. So thanks for uh, being the body of Christ, to be dedicated to one another in that way. All right, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had the chance to pray over Bix and Julie Bixler and their mission team as they headed to uh, Israel. They're going to head to Israel in July of this month or this year. And today I want cross-pointers uh, Ben and Lindsay Childers to come up here. And uh, they are headed to Brazil to serve with Project Amazon here in June. And Project Amazon is the mission organization that Nate and Ruth Ryder are a part of. Nate and Ruth, we've supported for a lot of years. They were in Brazil for a lot of years. They're in Japan now, continuing mission work. And um, Ben and Lindsay are heading, heading to uh, Brazil to serve with New Life Christian Church and to, to do um, ministry down in Brazil. And so a few years ago now, you guys went. And so they've, we've got a video here to show you kind of some of the work that they'll be doing. And their work is only five minutes long, and it's pretty awesome. Welcome to Brazil! We are going to build a church in Santarém, Marie. And six years ago, we, uh, we built a church for them, and they outgrew the church. And so we're real happy that we can go back. Come along with us. We're super excited. We're going to have a great trip. Hi, I'm Nate Ryder, and my wife Ruth and I are missionaries with Project Amazon in Brazil. Santa Miri is one of 40,000 communities in the Amazon Basin, of only which 5,000 have evangelical churches. Just near Santarém, there are over 180 communities waiting for churches to be built. So every time you send down a team, we are just so thrilled because we get one community closer to our goal. We're making sure that no mistakes, we have it in writing. We're working with the kids this afternoon. It's so wonderful to see how they are so organized and they love being here and working with us as much as we love being here working with them. Então, eu fico muito feliz quando eu, quando chega uma equipe e traz um, uma maleta de brinquedos para criança. É Deus trazendo amor em vocês para ela. I 
looking at the little church we built before and just admiring the fact that it's filled and we had a part of that and my main goal and I think the goal of others is to bring people to Christ and through the church we've done that and now I look back and forth to the big church from the little church and think about the growth there and it just gives me chills. So we love to see cross-pointers engaged in missions work, whether it's locally, uh, reaching those that cross our paths, or globally, uh, such as Vix and Julie going to Israel, or these guys going to Brazil, or a team uh, from Hype going down to Mississippi, or next year going a team from Crosspoint going to Mexico. So we love that, and we just want to pray for these guys uh, before they go, all right? Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for Ben and Lindsay. We thank you for their willingness to, to be used in this way. Uh, I pray that you would uh, bear abundant fruit as they serve there in June. I pray that uh, lives would be changed. I pray that not just buildings would be built, but the church itself, that people would be built and that disciples would be made and that as they serve, that you would uh, work in their own hearts, drawing them close to you and uh, changing them and just causing them to be more like Christ. I thank you for their willingness to sacrifice uh, time and money and energy to go. And I pray that uh, you would be glorified through it we thank you so much for them. We thank you for you and how you call us to, to be used in your worldwide uh, mission to go and make disciples. And thank you for this family. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you want to find out more about what they'll be doing or even support them financially, feel free to talk to them afterwards, all right? They leave uh, June 18th through the 30th, I believe. Um, so continue to be praying for them. If you have a Bible on your lap or on your device, get to Matthew 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, then uh, get one of the free ones at Guest Connections and uh, let that be our gift to you. And we'll be in the first six verses of chapter 7. We are in week three of a series called Jesus Said What? And we're uh, taking seven Sundays to look at some words of Christ, words written in red that might cause us to go, now wait, what, what did he just say there? Did he just say that? And, and then what does that mean for my life? If we know that he said these words, then how does that cause us to change or live or grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is? Because the words found in Scripture are God's words. They are the authority by which we live, and they describe to us the nature and character of God Himself. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, started yet, or if you're not on a Bible reading plan right now, that you pick one up at Guest Connections or online, our 40 Days Through the Four Gospels reading plan. Start off your summer that way. Get into the Gospels to get an, uh, an understanding of who Jesus is and what He came to do and who He was, who His nature and character was, and how that causes us to live. And, and on that uh, uh, reading plan, you've got a, an, an idea of, of how to read the Word, how to study it, not just read it, but be able to apply it to your life. So I'd encourage you to do that if you're not on a consistent basis in the Word. If, you, if we were to go down the, the whole um, uh, man-on-the-street interviews and we were to walk down the sidewalks of a city and ask random people what Bible verses they know or what the Bible says, we'd probably get John 3.16. We'd probably get, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. One of the other ones we'd probably get 
if not the very next verse that we'd probably get, they may not know where it's found, but they would know that the Bible says this, is one of the verses we're looking at today. Matthew 7.1. In fact, it's a really popular verse that we see a lot in our culture, and, and the popularity only seems to grow with more time. Uh, you might have heard it at work or at school this week. You might have seen it on social media or with a conversation with friends. Today, we're looking at these words from Jesus. In the ESV translation, they say, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, on first glance, if all we do is look at that one verse, we'll probably walk away with a pretty skewed or incorrect view of what Jesus is actually saying when he says, do not judge or judge not. So the thought in our culture goes, well, Jesus said, do not judge. So who am I to make moral evaluations of right or wrong? Therefore, what's right for you doesn't mean it's right for me or what's how you define right and wrong is not necessarily how I define right and wrong, and that's okay. Basically, because Jesus said, do not judge, means there's no absolute truth, and even if there was, we have no right to make moral evaluations or judgments. Who am I to judge, or who are you to judge, right? Because more and more, our culture says that our faith in Christ, our trust in the authority of of the Bible, it should be kept private. You keep that to yourself. And culture also says that morality or right or wrong are relative, that there's no absolute truth, and what's true for you doesn't mean it's true for me. So what is Jesus saying when he says, judge not that you be not judged? What is he saying? What's he not saying? Because culture often gets it wrong on this one, and we in the church often get it wrong on this one. And so in order for us to get a better understanding of what Jesus has said, we need to look at the context that uh, surrounds these verses. This verse is found in the Sermon on the Mount and that Jesus preached, and this sermon covered a variety of topics and subjects, a whole gamut of them. And, and here are just three examples of what Jesus said thus far prior to Matthew 7.1. Matthew 5.21 and 22 says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or Matthew 6, 19 through 21, and then verse 24 as well. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So throughout this whole sermon, Jesus has made some very clear evaluations and moral judgments. When you hate, you're wrong. When you lust, you're wrong. When you serve God instead of money, you're wrong. So after making such judgments, then what does he mean then by judge not that you be not judged? Does this verse then contradict everything he just said? Does it overrule every judgment that he's just made? The context shows that instead he means something along the lines of do not be cheaply critical or you will be subject, subjected to the same criticism. In other words, there's no way that the command of judge not prohibits his followers from making moral judgments. When making moral judgments is precisely what the whole of Jesus' teaching 
did. So let's look at these six verses of Matthew 7, and we'll talk about what he's saying, what he's not saying. It says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So verse 1 says, judge not. You, that you be not judged. And then five verses later, he calls some people dogs and pigs. So it's clearly an evaluation of someone's character, someone's heart, their way of life. He's making a judgment right there. Just five verses later after saying, do not judge, right? Some of your friends are swine and dogs. This is what he's saying. The verb judge that's used there in verse one has a wide range of meanings. It's translated 15 to 20 different ways and has a really broad meaning here. And the context around verse one helps us get an idea of what he means by these words. It helps us interpret it correctly so that we can apply it correctly to our lives. So what's he not saying? Let's first talk about that. Three things among others. He's not saying that as believers in and followers of Christ that we should avoid making moral evaluations or discernments. We are to walk with discernment. Just a few verses later in verse 15, Jesus says, "'Watch out for false prophets.'" They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So he says, some things are false and some things are true. Watch out for what is false. So live with discernment. So when I'm on social media, when I'm reading a book, when I'm listening to a song, when I'm listening to a speaker, I'm running that through a Bible filter, if you will. I'm running that through a gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting, Christ-centered filter that helps me discern what's true and what's false. Hebrews 5.14 says we are to distinguish or discern between good and evil. So judge not does not mean that we don't make judgments about what we're going to take in and what we're going to reject or what we're going to believe or what we're going to disregard as false. Jesus is also not saying that as his people, we never tell someone they are wrong because the fact of the matter is is that Jesus spent much of his ministry doing just that, right? We've seen it, just three examples in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a couple more examples, just a few verses later than in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So you're on the wrong path and you're on the right path. He's telling some of, some of us, so if, you're on the, if you're on the wide road, you're wrong. Or what about Matthew twenty two twenty nine? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures and the power of God, or, or the power of God. Or John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So Jesus was not... Well, who am I to correct? I know I'm the Son of God, but who am I to correct and call someone to live differently? If we believe that's the Jesus of the Bible, then we're making him out in our own image. We're making Jesus to be camp counselor Jesus with long flowy hair, guitar around the campfire where everybody loves and all the girls swarm at night. You know camp counselor? Maybe, maybe that's not your summer experience. 
It, it wasn't mine. I didn't, I didn't go to summer camp, but some of us make Jesus out to be camp counselor Jesus, where he never tells us to change. He never tells us that we're wrong. Jesus himself said he came for the sick, the ones who need a doctor, the ones who need healing, who recognize we have a sin disease that we can't fix on our own, and Jesus has come to save. John 3.17 tells us that he hasn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so, yes, he points out how we are wrong, but then he invites us to come near, to trust in him, in this life-giving, grace-filled relationship. By commanding us to judge not, Jesus is also not saying that we avoid all hard conversations. In fact, here he's given us a word picture to keep in mind as we engage in these hard conversations, a perspective that must dominate our relationships. Few of us revel in or enjoy relational conflict, whether it be with spouses, roommates, family members, co-workers, those in the local church family. And so we listen to judge not, and we are quick to somehow turn that into an application that means that we don't talk through difficult conversations. Well, it really isn't my place to say, and I, I, I better not say anything. I, I don't want to come off as judging, right? This is what we say. Even if our motivation is love for the Lord, love for that person, even if our motivation, when examined, is, is, is a tenderness and an openness to the Lord's work and a, and a humility before Him, we sometimes take verse 1 as an excuse to avoid all the hard conversations. But if you're a parent, you don't do this, right? You don't avoid that. I hope you don't, at least. We see something wrong in our child's life or heart, and we don't avoid conversations. We engage in it. Hopefully, we're patient in it, but we engage in it. Or maybe we're tempted to start avoiding it when they become teenagers, when in reality, that's the most important time to engage in these conversations. Don't just hope it'll work out. Engage in the relationship, in the conversation, in that messy conflict. So in looking at the context of these verses and the whole of Jesus' teaching, we know that him commanding us not to judge, Jesus is not saying that we avoid making discernments or that we avoid making moral judgments or that we avoid hard conversations or that we avoid telling someone they're wrong. So what is he saying? Well, he's drawn this contrast between two ways that we can engage in relationships and with people. Two approaches, two attitudes, two different manners in which we can go about it. And he's clearly rejecting one and rebuking one. And he's also, on the other side, clearly affirming and upholding another. First of all, he's rejecting the attitude or the approach of a Pharisee. First of all, what's a Pharisee? Well, the Pharisees were the primary target of Jesus' teaching. And uh, he continually evaluated them as being wrong. He made judgments about them being wrong. And the crowd that had gathered on that hillside to listen to the Sermon on the Mount included Pharisees, the religious leaders that were pious and proud. And you see him address them in much of that sermon. The attitude of the Pharisee is best described, uh, really described really well in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus says, he tells a parable about about this, and he says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up on the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee trusted in themselves. Their confidence was in their own self-righteousness, their ability to obey in certain areas of God's rules. They were their own standard. They were their own gods. And as a result, they looked down on everyone else. They judged others by their critical spirits. The Pharisees were proud and smug. The Pharisee stood off at a distance. They didn't want to engage in a relationship with the other people because that was messy. Because other people were at a lower level and the Pharisee wasn't going to stoop to that level. The Pharisee demanded other people change but was unwilling to change themselves. The Pharisee may not have been perfect, but man, they were right around the corner from turning toward perfection. The Pharisee was prone to this attitude that was sinful and holier than thou. The Pharisee didn't confess their sin to others, but they sure wanted their other people to confess their sin. In Proverbs 6, we're told that the Lord tests several things. He lists off some things. He says a lying tongue or hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil. The first one he mentions in that list, though, is haughty eyes, meaning eyes that looked down, eyes that were overly critical, that judged others based upon their position and missed that they were people created in the image and likeness of God and fearfully and wonderfully made. The Pharisee didn't live by grace and failed to see that it was only by God's grace that were saved. The most gracious of people are the ones who are fully aware that had it not been for the grace of God in our lives, intersecting our lives, that we'd still be lost and separated. That if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd still easily be down the same path in just a handful of decisions. Judge not, Jesus says. Jesus is talking about this, the judgmental, critical, condemning, tear one other person down to build yourself back up, to make yourself look better, self-righteous ego of the Pharisee. An ego that all of us are tempted to be bent toward. D.A. Carson, a uh, New Testament professor, said this regarding these verses. Jesus does insist that when they follow his instruction and make evaluations and judgments, They must do so without cheap criticism of others, a notoriously difficult requirement. There must be no condescension, no double standard, no sense of superiority, no patronizing sentimentality. Christians are never more than poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there is bread. This humble tone ought to characterize all Christian witness. Maybe you've got someone in your life that... uh, seems to have the so-called spiritual gift of criticism. Or maybe it's not you, but it's, or maybe it's not them, but it's you. As followers of Christ, we must continually repent from our overly critical spirits, which is the spirit of the Pharisee, not the spirit of our Lord. 
you won't find in Galatians 5 an excessively critical spirit listed as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, if you're a parent, we have to repent and turn from this attitude. Colossians 3 makes it really clear that as as fathers, we are not to embitter or frustrate our children. And we do just that. I've got a lot of experience in this. And we do just that when we are overly critical or careless with our words or condescending in our tone or our words. So in these words, in these verses, Jesus is rejecting the attitude of the Pharisee because the attitude of the Pharisee when it comes to relationships with others, the Pharisee refuses to receive criticism themselves. They don't welcome it. They don't ask people to see their blind spots. See the log in my eye. I know I've got a log in my eye. The Pharisee doesn't admit that because they think they have none. They want to criticize others, but then bristle at the idea that they should be criticized. They want to be overly generous in how they measure criticism toward others, but then be really light in how it's reciprocated back to them. Because the Pharisee hates to admit that they have faults. But if you understand the gospel, then faults don't surprise us, right? So when someone points out that I have work to do, I'm glad you pointed that out. Here's three or four other things maybe you didn't notice that I'll tell you about. Because I'm not trying to make much of me. I'm trying to make much of Jesus the perfect righteous one who died for the imperfect rebellious one. Two thumbs in this guy. The Pharisee also judges others by casting them off as people. People are simply a problem to fix. They're a project. We've got to deal with it instead of a person to love. But after Jesus told people the truth, he brought them near. He invited them to follow. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. For those who follow him, he, he has made us friends. He left the glory of heaven to dwell among the sick and the sinful and the proud and the broken. The attitude of the Pharisee is also quick to make hasty snap judgments. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. We really do this in public a lot. Now, again, we don't verbalize it. But we walk through and we, we just make these blanket statements where we see someone, well, they're, they're lying in the bed that they made for themselves. Or we assume that we know their entire story without ever even talking to them. And so the Pharisee is prone to make unwarranted, unjust, unmerciful statements. And as a result, our words cut. Pastor J.D. Greer says, when, people, or when Jesus told us to not judge He was not telling us to not assess someone's position. Quite the opposite. He was telling us to assess the position with great clarity without dismissing them as a person. Are you dismissing someone as a person right now? Are you dismissing a group of people as people right now? Is there someone in your life you've just kind of written off? And you would, you would know that because how you pray for them or how you interact with them or how you love them or don't love them. Jesus is rejecting the attitude and the way of the Pharisee when it comes to relationships with others. But then he's affirming and calling us to this different way, a better way, a God-glorifying way. He gives us a word picture on how to engage in relationships with others and in the hard conversations and to do it in a humble way and not in a haughty way He says again, verses 3 through 5, 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the idea of log and speck, it doesn't refer to log being really big sin and speck being really small sin and all sin, unless covered by the blood of Christ, separates and leads to death. It's not ranking. It's not making big and small here. That's not the contrast he's, he's talking about. Rather, this is seeing everything wrong in someone else's life, but failing to see anything wrong in your own life, or justifying your sin, but then condemning the sin of others. And the sin that sees everything wrong in someone else's life, and not your own, is what? It's the sin of self-righteousness. This is the log. It's the way of the Pharisee rather than the way of Christ. If you see yourself as the judge, as the one who has arrived, who has graduated from the gospel, who has graduated from your daily desperate need of God's grace in your life, if you see yourself as graduated from that, then you will be of no help to someone who is in desperate need of God's grace in their life. Notice in the words of Jesus here, he's assuming there's a log in your eye. It's not if there's a log, but he assumes you got something in your eye. I've got something in my eye. John Owen said the seed of every sin is in every heart. And my heart and your heart is not exempt. The disease of sin infects us all. We all have something in our eyes. The judging person pretends they don't, though. Or they have perfected the ability to cover it or make it not look as bad because often their sin is inward. Their sin is a, is a heart attitude. It's a mind thought. And they're disciplined enough to not let it out, to not type it or to not, to, to not communicate it, but it still rests in their heart. So it may not appear outwardly rebellious, but inwardly it's rebellious like a Pharisee. So Jesus is rejecting that tendency we have as Christ followers to demand for others a greater level of, of obedience than we are willing to demand of ourselves. It's the person who calls the pursuit of, of a homosexual life, lifestyle as wrong. And it is, according to Scripture. But it's the guy or the woman who says, that's wrong, but then goes home and looks at porn on their own phone or their own computer. It doesn't negate what's wrong. It just exposes the hypocrisy. Or the one who decries the greed of the corporations or the one that's on top and how they lie and, but then justifies cheating on their own income taxes. Or the one who notices and calls out, that person's such a gossip, and then turns around and gossips about the gossip. Or the one who can't believe that person is an alcoholic but then justifies their consistent drinking as just a way of dealing with stress. Jesus is calling out this tendency in our lives to live hypocritically, to demand of others greater obedience than we demand of ourselves, a greater surrender and humility on their part than we demand of ourselves. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, ignore the speck in the other person's life. He doesn't say, pull the log out of your eye and then go about your business. 
Again, he's not saying that we don't engage in hard conversations or help point out sin in other people's lives or have this this clear sense of mutual accountability here. He's saying that you're going to see specks in other people's lives, but are you humble enough to see the log in your own eye? Do you see the self-righteousness in you? The tendency to puff up about your knowledge, about your level of obedience. Here's a question for you. I asked my wife last night. It was a good date question. Ask someone who loves you enough to tell you the truth, and my wife would definitely qualify as that. Ask them the question, am I self-righteous? Or where do you see me prone to this attitude of self-righteousness? Do you see the log of self-righteousness in me? Now, some of us don't want to ask that question because we, we don't want to hear the answer. And so when we hear the answer, I just challenge you to receive it with humility even if it's an encouraging answer, to receive it with humility. John MacArthur said this in regards to the person who's, who's really focused on the speck, but at the expense of the log or the plank in their own eye. He says, I, I mean, you're so good that you can sit around checking out everybody else. I mean, you've got nothing to work on. I mean, you've got it all under control so that you can spend your time evaluating everybody else. Some of us would do well to take the time we spend criticizing other people and put it to action in prayer and confession of our own sins somewhere in a closet. Because until we get our own life straightened out, we have little usefulness in trying to assist someone else. In other words, in the event of an emergency landing, put your own oxygen mask on first, right? Don't disregard your daily and desperate need of God's grace in your life. As God's people, we must be people who get before the Lord saying, Search me, O God, and know me. Test my thoughts. See if there's anxious or worrisome ways in me. We must be people who pray like David prayed in Psalm 51. All of us, not just them, but all of us, create in me, O God, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. We must be people like Romans 12, 3, that we are to not think too highly of ourselves, but rather think of ourselves with sober judgment. I've had gas permeable contacts since I was uh, in eighth grade. They were a glorious, glorious upgrade from my thick lens plastic glasses I'd had since kindergarten. I mean, it was like, hello, ladies, I got contacts on, and ladies didn't come, but I, I still thought, hello, ladies. And um, They were great for basketball until they popped out, but stop. Um, but the nature of gas perm contacts is if you get something in them, I'm basically rendered useless. Um, my eye starts watering like a river. I start sniveling and sniffing, and um, I can barely keep my eye open. I'm really sensitive to light when it happens, and I can see uh, that I've got something in my eye, but I've got to wash my eyes first because otherwise I can barely see what I'm doing. If I'm driving, it's a dangerous type of thing. I got to pull over. It's, if, it, you, if you know what I mean, it's just like, it's crazy. But after getting something in my eye and then having the opportunity to have washed it and removed whatever is there, it's this beautiful relief. I mean, my eyes probably red, bright red afterwards, but it's still like, oh, I can see it's such relief. Now, if someone were to get something in their eye, my first thought is empathy and compassion. Yeah, that's painful, isn't it? It's crippling to whatever you were trying to do in that moment. But what I wouldn't say is, well, good luck with that. looks like you got something in your eye. That looks pretty bad. I hope you get that thing out and then, I, and then walk away. 
No, I, I'd come alongside and let me help you get, get you to the sink because I know what that felt like. I know what that feels like. And I know the relief that the sink provides because you get that thing washed and, ah, oh, it's so, so good. If you're in Christ, do you remember what the grace of God felt like? Not only when you got saved, but last week when you blew it. This morning when you got up, when you got up and you took a breath, you remember what the grace of God felt like. You have moments in your life where you remember the law, the law getting exposed. I do. And when the law got exposed, you experienced the grace and mercy of God, not only vertically but horizontally with others. The Apostle Paul, after giving us a long list in 1 Corinthians 6 about uh, the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, a long list of sins that none of us would come out cleanly on. He says this in uh, verse 11. And such were some of you. So, so this, is, this was your old identity. The greed, the sexual immorality, the drunkenness, and he rattles off several things. The, the line. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Your eye was rinsed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by and by the Spirit of our God. Crosspoint, are we daily aware that we have been washed by the grace of God? That through the cross there is freedom and forgiveness. That our sin no longer defines us, but our identity in Christ does. So when I'm talking to someone caught in sin, or with a speck in their eye, I'm painfully aware that I'm infected by that same sin, and I'm verbalizing that when I talk to him. I want God to show me mercy, so I want my tone to be that of mercy when I speak to others. That doesn't mean I don't share truth, but it does mean that in how I go about it, I, I look for the pursuit, the path of Christ and not the path of the Pharisee. So we can't walk away from this thinking that Jesus does not call us to discernment or call us to evaluate right and wrong. We can't walk away assuming that Jesus calls us to never tell someone they are wrong or to avoid all hard conversations, that we never confront someone who has a blind spot. Galatians 6, 1-3 specifically says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you, be t- lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's the same way or approach that Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 7. Don't disregard it, but in how you engage in it, there's a, there's a tone of gentleness, the goal of restoration. The vehicle that God uses is relationships. The attitude that we seek is to not think too highly of ourselves. That we would seek to be full of grace and truth like Jesus because you can't have one without the other. Truth without grace is judgmental fundamentalism. It's what some of you grew up with and you still have the wounds because I hear about it. You still have the wounds to show of it. It's the way of the Pharisee. But grace without truth is whatever goes, that's fine. It's the way of the culture. It's not the way of a Christ follower. It's not the way of his church. So we can't walk away thinking that we have this license to start calling out all the specks that we've been noticing without first laying our heart before the Lord saying, search me and know me. To close, I'm going to pray a prayer from Pastor Scotty Smith. Um, He's a pastor of Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and he writes this 
in response to these words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Um, I loved reading them this week, and I'm just going to pray this prayer as we close. Uh, Dear Lord Jesus, when I rubbed my irritated eyes this morning, I soon realized it was not a speck of dust, but a rough-hewn board stuck there. Just because I don't throw things or scream and yell doesn't mean I'm not a critical person. Condescending coolness is just a synonym for clanging cymbals. Have mercy on me, Jesus. You are so forbearing, kind, and gracious. Have mercy on me, the self-righteous sinner. My self-righteousness usually shows up not in trying to merit more of your love, but in withholding your love from others. The dark irony is that the sins that offend me most in others are the very sins most pronounced in my own life. A lack of mercy, preoccupation with oneself, a critical spirit. I wish those were the only ways I don't love well. Lord Jesus, as cardiologist and ophthalmologist, bring your grace and truth to bear in my heart and my eyes. I want to love as you love and see as you see. I don't want people to feel pressure to change when I enter the room, nor do I want them to feel my indifference and disengagement. Teach me and lead me in the third way, the way of the gospel. Since you do call us to help one another with our specks of sawdust, help me be first, be a first responder to the life-giving rebukes of friends, a humble recipient of the feedback and reproof of those who long for my freedom and someone who anticipates welcomes and acts on the daily even hourly call to repentance so amen i pray jesus in your kind and powerful name as we build 3d relationships as a church may we be people who seek to be mutually accountable to one another where we are the first ones to say to a fellow brother or sister would you help me see the log in my eye i know i'm going to have stuff in my eye would you help help me see that And then be humble enough to receive it and walk in community and in relationships with one another where we glorify God and and we pursue the grace of God. Um, Now we're going to transition. VBS is uh, coming up. And um, we're going to watch a video, I believe. It's coming up in a little less than a month. Watch this video, and then Holly McLean will be up to tell us more about how to be involved. So, what's the real reason VBS is so great? Is it the awesome songs? Or the fun games? Is it the crazy gizmos? Or tasty snacks? Is it the great stories and engaging Bible adventures? Well, that's part of it. But what's the real reason VBS is so great? He is! He is! She is! You are! You are! It's you that makes VBS great. Is that on? Okay. Hi. Thanks, Dave. Um, as you can see, Everest is going to be a lot of fun. We had the opportunity to work at New Life in Morton yesterday um, making decorations. We are working with now three other churches to build the decoration sets for VBS, and we're sharing amongst all of us, which is an amazing opportunity if you think about it. Um, it's just a really neat way to fellowship and uh, 
it's a great experience. So I'm very, very happy to have that opportunity this year. Um, tomorrow's work night is at 7 p.m. in the family room in the back. We have several projects that need finishing up. So if you feel like you have the time, it could be a half hour, an hour. Um, we'd really appreciate it. Your help does not go unnoticed. We have a lot of fun things that we're finishing up as well. We're, I think, drilling some holes and pieces of wood. So there's things for men to do, and there's things, posters to finish. So if you're artistic, come along. We're going to be um, have the music set up out here, so anybody who's wanting to help with the worship of the night can practice the moves and the songs and the lyrics. So come along, and um, it'll be a good time. And lastly, VBS Central is in the back of the living room, and if you could check that out, if you haven't already, or check it again. Um, we have a few things that still need to uh, be taken, uh, the donation slips, if you uh, haven't already, but there's also sign-up sheets for everything crew leaders, or if you want to help in the snack area, or specific areas of VBS that you feel called to help out in, um, there's a sign-up sheet for you back there. Um, the more people we have volunteer for VBS, uh, two things happen. One, it runs a lot smoother. Um, it just, the nights flow better. It's just a really, it's a, it's a good thing to have as many people as possible, but two, it helps us keep the focus on sharing the gospel message to the community, to the families and the children in our area that might need to hear that message. If we have more people working, then we can really target those families that walk through the door that really need to hear the love of Jesus. So um, thank you, and hopefully I'll see you back at VBS Central. Have a good week.